0: listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. Today I'm talking with Trolls Hendriksen, co-creator of the Futhark programming language and assistant professor at the University of Copenhagen. We get deep into compiler design from a performance perspective, talking about things like parallel processing opportunities, smaller in memory representations, and how language design can affect what's even possible from a performance perspective. And now, designing compilers for speed. Okay, Trolls, thank you for joining me yeah yeah um thank you for having me. So you're a creator of the or co-creator of the futhark programming language, and that's a language that does a lot with parallelism and I've something I've always wondered is what kind of opportunities are there to get parallelism involved in different stages of compilation Now I'm not necessarily meaning GPU, which I know is like futhark's big thing is is compiling code that runs on the GPU, but just in general, I mean i I had Danielle Lemire on the podcast recently, and we were talking about his work on simd json and sort of parallel parsing, and I'm wondering, well, there's, there's a bunch of other stages in the compiler that are a lot slower than parsing, and I wonder about uh, what opportunities there might be for getting data parallelism or other forms of parallelism going there.
1: So in any kind of problem, and most problems worth parallelizing, you have, you have different levels that are worth looking at, and some of these are, have a way worse cost-benefit ratios than others. So hmm. compilation, for example, the, the obvious way to, to paralyze it. And what is, and also the easiest way is to paralyze along the compilation unit. So in a standard C program, if you're using just make or other tools from the seventies, you just pass dash J and it'll run multiple processes, one process per, per file, really. And this sure. is a super, super easy way of paralyzing compilation. And I mean, it's trivial to do. And you get pretty good speed up on large programs. Uh, so that's definitely why I would start parallelization by by compilation unit. Sure. And that's nice because it's there, it's completely independent. Now, the second thing you can do is you can go into each compilation unit and then and split them up into things that are still mostly independent, like top level functions, for example. Hmm. Then, um, I mean, if you can, sometimes you can type check all of them independently. It depends on your type system. So if you enforce type signatures at the top level, then you can just look at each function you can by itself and see whether it's consistent with the other declarations. So that's definitely possible. If you have full type inference, like in standard ML or Haskell or F Sharp then things are more tricky because you can have these weird dependencies between um, the types of, of different things, and it becomes more difficult. So Hindley-Milner type inference is this kind of constrained propagation problem, uh, and I don't actually know the state of the art in paralyzing that. I actually have a plan to investigate it myself. I, I don't think it's particularly easy. Um, Yeah. yeah.
0: Something I've wondered along those lines is, so even when you have like full Hindley-Milner type inference and you don't need to annotate in your functions, it's still very common practice to annotate the functions. So it seems like to me, you could probably separate your modules out into, well, here are all the functions that do have type annotations. And if they happen to have one, then I can put those into the, we're going to compile it, assuming that that annotation is correct, and then separately verify that the implementation matches the annotation. And then everything else that doesn't have annotations, which in practice should be pretty rare, probably those we can, you know, do something different with.
1: Right, so depending on your language, it you can still be a little bit tricky to identify these things because if your language allows mutually recursive functions, like you can use a function before you define it, then yep. you need to figure out kind of whether your fully annotated function is actually calling something that isn't fully annotated that appears right. in the program. So you might still need to sequentially traverse everything to figure out the dependencies, and then split that into uh, you know, strongly connected components or functions that are kind of a unit that, are, that is fully annotated, and then things that are not, and then just then Then you can start... Paralysing all these different units. But by that point, maybe you've already spent so much time doing the partitioning that there's not really much point to the parallelization. And you've written a lot of complicated code on top of it. So it's uh, it's really difficult for me to say when it's when it's worth it. But I think it's very, as always, it's useful to really think this into the language design itself. I don't think you can just have a language that was designed without efficient compilation in mind and then write a fancy compiler and smear parallelization magic over it.
0: And have it, it's, it. It's right. Awesome. R- Rub some parallelization on it. <laughs> Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, yeah. so in our case, we actually, as it happens in the case of Rock, we already do uh, strongly connected components during the canonicalization phase. So it's like first we parse and then we canonicalize And as part of that. We already do that. I actually don't remember why anymore, but there was a reason. I think it might've just been because we allow out of order declarations in general, and we needed to do that before constraint generation. So the constraints would line up. I think it would be pretty trivial for us to just be like, oh yeah, my, because certainly we know by the end of parsing, which things are annotated, and which are not. So I think it, while we're in the course of doing that, it be hopefully straightforward to split them up into annotated versus not
1: well it can be a little bit tricky so maybe you got this right in rock but there are some languages that where you can inside of a function you can bring new names in scope without listing them explicitly for example haskell has this awful feature called i think they call them record wildcards so you can say let then in a record pattern put two dots and then equal some expression and that means take all of the names in that record and bind bring them into scope as as variables and right. sure, that's convenient, but it means that you need to, to do type inference to even figure out which names come into scope here. And sure, maybe those names shadow some other function that is that will <laughs> otherwise be used. And so you, you just, you cannot do the uh, the what is it name referencing, or whatever it's called, uh, without doing type inference as well simultaneously, which is just...
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not a fan of that stuff. So we don't have that, and we also don't even have uh, open imports. Like you have to import, you have to name every single thing that you import explicitly. Yeah, partly Uh, that's for because it helps the compiler out, uh, let it go faster. But also because personally, whenever I read a file that has an open import, I'm always like, why, why are these not listed out? Now I have to go guess where things came from. It's it's frustrating compared to like it's definitely makes writing faster, but it makes reading the code worse. And I think it's better to prioritize reading, and as a bonus, also make the compiler go faster.
1: Right. I sort of have the same hunch. I bring things invisibly into scope is probably always a bad idea. (laughs) Uh, I haven't actually, so in Food that specifically, I haven't, I mean, it does allow open imports because I'm, well, I guess because I'm a coward, but <laughs> I, can, I cannot really defend it using it. Um, but maybe I'm just afraid of alienating people too much. Um, also, there's another thing, is which is that for, for language where I want to do um, show small nuggets of code, like if you have a rebel where I just want to show some kind of thing, then it's useful to very quickly be able to bring stuff into scope, or just so by implicitly having a, a, a large standard environment. And I think there's value to balancing that, because for when you want to show things to a, a new user, for example, there's a whole lot of value in just being able to open a, a REPL or whatever and type in some code and show something without first having a bunch of boilerplate work with imports. On the other True. hand, when you're maintaining a large program in a team, then it's very useful to have a bunch of boilerplate saying explicitly, this is now our world that we'll be working inside. And balancing these, the tension between these things is, um, is not easy
0: that's a great point i mean so so two thoughts on that one is so at least in rock we have yeah we, we do have some things that are always imported so it's the same as elm like this i guess you could think of it as like a prelude kind of uh it's you know that we call them built-ins but it's just like you know dictionaries sets strings lists numbers those are always available and you don't you don't have to say import but yeah there are other, other things that you do have to explicitly import well part of the reason that i designed it to be there's no open imports is like you mentioned you know you don't want to alienate people and i totally get that one of the uh, design principles that I like to go with is it's like, well, if this isn't something that most languages use, but I think it might be a good idea, I tend to try to default to not doing the normal thing to try it out because then I've done the experiment. And if people rebel and are like, this is horrible, I'm not going to use this language, then okay, now we know how the experiment went and we can switch back to the you know conservative thing. But you can't really go the other way if you don't try it the other if you don't try the new way the way that people are not used to you can't find out if it's better there's no way to you know uh, you don't have any data on that so so far in rock nobody's complained about it. I actually forgot that like we don't allow it because I'm just so used to it and uh, no one's ever complained about it.
1: Right, there's also a trick that, that kind of lessens the pain a bit. I don't know if you have that in Rock, which is that if you have a namespaces like like methods in an object-oriented language or namespaces in C then you can you can kind of you import multiple names, but they must all be qualified by some yes. other name, and that allows you to say if once and for all import this module by name, and you always have to say module name dot whatever. Then it's always explicit where it's from.
0: That's exactly that's how a, we do it. Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, that's. Uh, I think that's the that's the way you make it workable because some modules will otherwise need to have hundreds of explicit imports and that's
0: just just yeah. So you always say like list map or yeah. you know set dot map. You don't just say map and then right. like, like in Haskell. Um,
1: so in uh, have you ever heard about the feature? I think it's called qualified imports in uh, import expressions or something in OCaml. Uh, no. So that's a feature that I'm, we have it in FoodArk, and I'm not quite sure whether it's a good idea or not. So the idea is that you can have a module, like let's say list, and you say list dot, and then in parentheses, and then inside those parentheses, all of the names in the list module will be in scope. So it's kind of like a local open, where you have a parenthesized expression, where I've locally opened a module. And uh, it's mostly useful for when you have some kind of number type, and you could say, um, like... F64 dot, and then inside that, all of the you would just say square root, and it'll be the F64 square root. Uh, and that can it's it's you can it can abbreviate some things, but you can also make some things unclear. It's easy for typos to sneak in, for example. I'm not sure whether I like it, but you might want to take a look at it and, and investigate it. So, this almost,
0: is like uh. You're saying, I want to uh, locally, in, in a particular scope, bring in these certain things as unqualified.
1: Yeah, well, you want to bring in everything that some other module imports. It's, it's really like like oh. you say list.map, but instead of saying list.map, you say list. and then an entire expression. And then everything inside the list will be, you can just reference inside that expression. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's, it's open to abuse. It has some problems because you need to know what that list is before you can... Uh, it's not clear to me whether it's a good idea or not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not as bad as invisibly bringing record fields into scope because at least you can do this once you know the modules. You don't have to know the types of everything. You just have to know what, which modules exist, but it's still them. Um,
0: I think this is an underappreciated aspect of language design is that every new programming language is in some part an experiment. Where you're always like, well, I don't know if it's a good idea or not because no one's ever tried it before. So we're going to try it. Or, or if someone has tried it, but they tried it under different circumstances, the context was different. I'm not sure if it's going to work well in this language like it did in that language or the other way around.
1: Yeah. Now I'm wondering whether there's ever been a language that did absolutely nothing new and that was the intent. <laughs> <laughs> I learned, well, if it's, I mean, even if you just take an existing language and you subset it, that's an experiment saying, can we do without these other features? Right. So, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Every language is an experiment. And I, I mean, most experiments fail. And
0: that's true. Yeah. yeah and most most languages never get popular. <laughs> yeah, really. I was thinking about the sort of breakdown of language popularity, because obviously there's like, you know, the top 10 most popular languages are, you know, household names are extremely, extremely well known. But I was trying to think of like, what's the threshold where you've you've made a language that is uh, sufficiently, po- it's like not, it's not mainstream, it's far from mainstream, but it's it's made it out of... Like maybe like 99% of languages never make it to this far. And I think it's something along the lines of thousands of people have used it. Uh, and I think maybe you have to have a caveat of, and they're using it because they chose to use it uh, or because they had to use it for work as opposed to like, you're a professor and you made this language and you make your students use it. And so yes. however many <laughs> students you have gets multiplied by, like that's cheating, I think.
1: So, so, so you actually made a very fine distinction there. Well, the, that's the distinction, well I think that's kind of three levels. Um, okay more. there's the a language creator forces someone else to use a language like I would as yeah. a professor I would tell my students this is an assignment you have to use um, right okay that, that's kind of the first bar the second is a hobbyist or someone picking up the language for their own use um and using it because I think it's fun or useful. And then right. I think the thing the third one is when you're being forced to use the language, but not by someone who has an interest in the language itself. Like when the, the right. boss tells you to use this language, I think that's the last barrier. Then then you've really made it. When someone else forces yeah. a third party to use the language without you being involved. That's the uh, that's the threshold of use.
0: That's a great point. I, I never thought about that. But yeah, it is definitely a a milestone when the language has been used by someone who yeah d- didn't have any interest in the language, but they just, that's what they're using for job or or for school, I suppose. And the person who's telling them they have to use it for this task is not uh, like involved in languages creation.
1: So, uh, again, Strosow has this famous saying that uh, there are two kinds of languages. The ones no one complain about and the one people use. Uh,
0: right,
1: right. <laughs> maybe there's a similar thing. That's There's two kinds of languages, the ones that no one uses and the ones that people are being forced to use. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I wonder if yeah. there are any languages that are exclusively hobbyist. Like people people use it just for fun and no one ever uses it for work or for school.
1: Oh, for sure. I mean, most languages are probably that way because most languages are hmm. written as a hobbyist experiment. By, but
0: Oh, that's Legal true. Yeah, people. I guess. So I guess true. I'm thinking like among those that are, yeah, I don't know, used by thousands of On people. Large
1: scale it would be very difficult. It's a very really good question. I mean, there's things like like Urbit, This that weird uh, peer-to-peer ish language. I, I I can't think of a way to make money with that. So I. Uh,
0: <laughs> I don't even know what, the, I, I've heard of it, but I don't actually know what it is. Yeah, it's,
1: um, I don't even remember if urban is a language I've called Hoon or something. It's very, we have a, the entire separate world of terminology. I cannot keep up. It's it's very strange.
0: I don't know how many people are using the hair programming language, but that kind of comes to mind because as I recall, there's something about, it's like it only, it's a C alternative and it's very intentionally minimalistic. And also, it also by design only compiles, the, the only target uh, like free operating systems. So you can use it on like Linux and FreeBSD, but you, they don't even build for macOS or Windows. Oh, so that I think would make it hard to use in industry.
1: Yeah, I mean, but like, Linux is pretty popular for servers and so on. I think. For servers,
0: I think, yeah. But how do you do, deve- like, not, not a lot of companies are saying every uh, developer has a Linux machine as their right. development machine.
1: Yeah, it's, it's also quite, yeah, I see. I was also thinking something like Emacs, Lisp, I don't oh. think that's a very popular language with many many hobbyists and 30 40 years of, of usage i don't think there are many commercial uh, <laughs> right right it, but i know there are many companies where they have internal tooling that use emacs lisp so i guess it depends on how you count
0: yeah but, but like not is, a lot of people have on their resume at this job i wrote emacs lisp that was what <laughs> i did at this job <laughs> yeah that's that's a that's a strong contender yeah interesting so, how did you get into GPU development in, in particular? Because that's, well, not, not only GPU, but GPU not being used for graphics, which is an even smaller niche.
1: Well, uh, yeah. So, now we're back to this thing about people being forced to use languages. <laughs> I was not actually terribly interested in parallelism or graphics when I was a, a student, but I really liked writing compilers, and I was mm-hmm. a teaching assistant in a course where the students had to, they were given a compiler draft and they had to finish it during the course. And mm-hmm. I think it's a good way of teaching compilers. What I didn't like was the specific way they had designed the AST in that course, which I thought was, it was an F-sharp, and I thought it it was uh, very clumsy. So the way they designed it is that you had the AST as produced by the parser, and then the type checker would insert annotations in the AST indicating the types of the various sub-expressions. And the way that was done was that the AST contained these uh, option fields, so it was there would be none after after passing, And then after the type checking run, there would all be some. But there was Mm -hmm. no static guarantee. So the code generator would have all these, this is impossible case. And I thought that was very (laughs) clumsy. So I I wanted to rewrite the AST such that it used a higher rank um, representation where it was parametrized over a functor that would wrap all the annotations, which would either Hmm. be the identity function after type checking or the constant no information functor after passing. Uh-huh. And then you would statically have a guarantee you would instantiate the AST two different ways. And you have a guarantee that the AST that made it to code generation would have all these type annotations. And, nice. Um, and so I really want to try that. And, and after I had I'd been a teaching assistant, the, um, one of the teachers of the course... Um, he asked students to, to volunteer in, in a research project he was setting up about constructing a compiler for parallel compilation. And I volunteered uh, to help him to help, to help out with that, mostly because I wanted to try out this, uh, this new AST design. Ah. Um, and it worked. And then I just I wrote some, an interpreter and a type checker and so on just to, to try it out. And then my, the, uh, the teacher invited me to be hired as a teaching, uh, what is it, research programmer. Hmm. Sure. I mean, I enjoyed the work, so he hired me as a research programmer, and um, that imp- compiler was what eventually became Futhark. Wow! So it cool. started out just as me wanting to experiment with a different AST representation, which turned out to be an okay representation, but not great. It was very awkward to work with. <laughs> so, oh, really? Why? Why was that? Yeah, mostly because I w- it, it requires some fiddly programming in Haskell. If you want to abstract over types that are higher rank polymorphic, and I, didn't, I wasn't sufficiently good at Haskell to, to know when to limit myself, so it became kind of quite messy. We still use a refined form of that representation, but it's when you're doing this kind of fancy type level programming, you need to know when to stop, because otherwise <laughs> you just dig a, dig a real deep hole for yourself.
0: Yeah, I'm. Uh, I don't want to say the opposite end of the spectrum, but but right now I'm I'm also kind of obsessed with a certain AST representation. But it's not about trying to make it really elegant, but rather it's about trying to make it really small. So I, I recently saw a talk uh, from Chandler Caruth on. Uh, so they're working on the Carbon compiler. It's like they want to, I guess, make a successor to C plus He was talking about adjacency, and so the idea is so there's the baseline idea of rather than ranging your let's let's call it a parse tree instead of having it be. Every node has you know pointers to or references to uh, the other nodes. You make sure that everything is just adjacent in memory, which I think should be pretty straightforward. I have a pretty clever thing that I do for binary operators because they need to require sort of rearranging things. But I found a way to do the swaps in theory efficiently, but this is not implemented yet. So take it with a very large grain of salt. But the idea is I got from this talk is using adjacency. So basically, you you have some nodes. So let's say you have a unary um, like exclamation mark operator, and you say, okay, well I know that this this node has one sort of expression inside of it. It's the thing that we are doing not on. And you could say, I'm going to store where that thing is. Or you could just say, well, it's just going to be the next one. And I just know that. It's always the next thing in the tree. So now I don't have to store that data. And there's a bunch of things like that uh, that, that come up where you can say, like, for example, um, if you have a conditional. So this would be like case in Haskell or OCaml um, or Elm. Then you can you can say, well, the thing right after that keyword is going to be the the expression that you're matching on uh, that you're pattern matching on we don't need to have a separate like pointer for that we do need to have a you know like know where that thing ends and, and where the branches begin but we don't need to ha- store that and so doing that I kind of went through rocks, current AST, which is about 40 bytes in memory. And I found I could get it all the way down to four bytes per node. Now, granted, that's with having to store the source information out of band separately, which I think we want to do anyway. So the source information is eight bytes. (laughs) But the nodes themselves are only four bytes. And basically, it's like one byte for the discriminant. And then the other three bytes, we use as like a 24-bit identifier, which depending on the node, stores some different piece of information. And then just using that and adjacency, And the fact that some of these things need to be sort of chained together, that's enough to, in theory, represent everything. Now, granted, if I go to an implementation, it might actually turn out that, you know, I've missed something. But so far on paper, it seems like that's doable. And I was very surprised that 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 seemed to be feasible.
1: Yeah, so the idea is that you stole the entire tree in a pre-order traversal in an array.
0: Yes. Uh, so, so basically, like, let's assume we have a lexer. And then as you get the tokens out of the lexer, you build up the, the parse tree, uh, just like by just adding things as you go. Like I said, infix operators are a little bit tricky. But I, I did find out a, a clever technique that again, in theory on paper works, which is has to do with essentially swapping the first node. When you hit the infix operator, you, you remember where the previous node began, because of course, it might have had nested nodes underneath it. And then you swap the infix operator with that. And the infix node, when you hit one of those, it stores in its 24 bits. Here's how many ahead you have to go to find the real thing that goes in my left-hand side. Uh, And then when when you're processing that thing, you have to say, okay, well, I know that I am actually somewhere else in the tree because I was part of an infix operation. Like I said, it's a little bit complicated, but it does mean that you essentially don't have to backtrack. When you hit the infix operator, you just swap it with the thing that you were previously working on. And I also have not done precedence or associativity on those. And I think in theory, again, they can be used using the same swapping technique, but I haven't tried it yet. In practice, so maybe all of this was not going to work, but in theory, it's it's exciting to me.
1: <laughs> no, I, I don't. I don't think the priority and associativity stuff should matter much because that just affects which production in the grammar that you apply. It doesn't right. really affect the tree you construct. I guess it depends on how your parser works,
0: but it shouldn't. Well, be. right, just in the sense that it's more reordering. But yeah, I, I agree. I, I don't think it should be a problem. I'm not. I'm not concerned about it, but it is something that you know is on my radar.
1: So I'm actually curious. Why do you want such a compact tree representation? It, I mean, it's going to be very com- compact memory. Uh, do you want yes. to, what, extremely large programs? Or,
0: uh... So, uh, well, first of all, we definitely want to make uh, extremely large rock programs in the future. So there's two reasons for that. So one is um, just, just to make parsing go faster. But the bigger payoff uh, to me is that we can do something very similar in our canonical representation. So when we go from parse to tree to canonical representation, uh, I think we can also do the same kind of four-byte trick. But the real payoff that I'm excited about is actually a couple steps later. So we do monomorphization. And that tree ends up getting duplicated several times and specialized several times. And that is certainly one of the slowest parts of the compiler right now. It takes the most time. And so having a really compact representation of that hopefully will lead to a lot fewer cache misses and basically just, just speed the whole thing up. Because one of the things we've found that's been most effective at making the compiler faster has been doing sort of a data-oriented design type thing, thinking about cache misses and trying to minimize them. That's been more effective at making the compiler faster than anything else we've tried. And this seems like shrinking the size of the nodes that are in memory seems like a potentially very promising way to, to make those steps faster.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, that'll also that'll always make things faster. So I, I don't actually know that much about making compilers specifically fast. It's my so which are the very which are the fastest production compilers today? Like Go is famous for being very fast, right? Go
0: is uh, among, I would say, among automatically memory-managed languages. Yeah, Go is very fast. It actually got slower because they rewrote it in Go, <laughs> yeah, I <remember. laughs> which I always thought was...
1: And they used SSA now, and they, but that's to have better optimization. Yeah, it's, I mean, the more you do in the compiler, the slower it's going to run. But it's my impression that people rarely complain about the performance of Go's compiler. And Go is usually very large programs, right? So... Um,
0: I think, yeah, Go is definitely the the language that comes to mind first when I think about automatic memory managed languages. When I think about systems languages, I think about Zig, and uh, it seems like Clang compiling C can be quite fast, but it probably depends a lot on how your headers work.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no C compiler is going to be truly fast. It's uh, the header system is just a mess.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I guess if you theoretically had a C code base that was highly unusual in that like things didn't like everything only imported one thing or something like that, then maybe it'd be fine. But yeah, the the headers really kind of mess things up for C, even if the the rest of the compiler is fast. So I would say, I mean, the, the, the two that I would name would be Go and Zig, I would say, as compilers that go fast.
1: But then I have a question. So um, you have when you come up with this very fancy compact representation, now it, it depends crucially on some on some on some um, strong assumptions, for example, the, uh, the pre-order traversal order. Right. So that, that makes it more difficult to to locally transform part of the tree. You can't just, for example, if you're inline a function, then the single application node now becomes an arbitrarily large subtree and that violates your constraints and so you have to really move a lot of memory in order to make room for the inline function. So yeah, now, so something slower. I mean it's more compact representation but it's like it's zipped and, and to work on a on a compressed representation you need to uncompress it otherwise it's intractably uh, slow.
0: I agree with that. So uh, my my thought about that so couple thoughts. One is right now, we don't actually do any of that. But we do want to do that in the future. Like we do want to do our own inlining. My thought there is that when we specifically get to something like inlining, what we can do is we can have a new node type that basically says, I'm a pointer. <laughs> and I write, you know, something in this other this other section of memory. And then we just ex- we copy it into there and then expand it or, or whatever we might need to do. And yes, that would make the, the traversal slow down. But in the case where we're not doing that, I, hopefully it would be a lot faster. And I think also, when we are doing the inlining, if we're doing all the inlining in one pass, then hopefully that sort of second, like, hey, I'm a pointer into this other thing, that could also be very compact because we're just going through and just like inline, 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 and that just, you know, yeah. right. Through. So yeah. we ways. One is the sort of main one that we got from the previous steps in the compiler, and the other is the sort of like inlined and array. Exactly, I, those I, those
1: don't, I don't think it would make traversal slow to have this kind of indirect thing. You have to remember that when you have a big tree, the question is just where do you put it? So yeah. by having a pointer to it, at most you're going to have like one more cache miss because you have to jump all the way there, <coughs> but you're still going to have lots of cache misses while traversing that big inline tree. Yeah. So it's, I mean, unless you end up having these indirect nodes at every possible level, it's going to be, um, it's not going to matter much.
0: I think that's true. I, I, so like, the case that I worry about, which maybe just wouldn't come up that often in practice, is it's going to leave big holes in the original thing, right? Because, or, or it can, because you have, you come along, you say, oh, I I take this thing that was previously, let's say 128 bytes. And we're like, well, we need to inline. That's going to double its size. So we don't have room for it. So we replace the first byte with, hey, I'm a pointer. But now the remaining 127 bytes are just dead. <laughs> They're nothing. They don't do anything anymore. Um, and that's the thing that I could see causing you know unnecessary cache misses and stuff.
1: Yeah, but uh, I mean, traversing, I mean, you'll be jumping over those, those 128 bytes, right? Right. So previously that would have caused uh, two cache misses anyway. So now, now you go somewhere else to the subtree, it'll be a cache miss. Mm-hmm. And then you're, when you're done down there, you'll jump, and then there'll be another cache miss. So that's like, Two cashmirs still. I, I don't yeah, think it'll be so bad in most cases. I mean, that's pathological cases where you just turn every single node into one of these indirect things, and you end up jumping all over <laughs> Right, right. You know, that will not yeah. be worse than a standard ASU representation. No, just true. the same thing. So I that's think true. this yeah. is. And you can also you can have some kind of. In principle, you can you can have some kind of compaction pass where you go in and actually <laughs> normalize. You can you can have a counter saying how bad is has it gotten. You can have a metric for it. It's pretty predictable, really.
0: Um, That's a good point, yeah.
1: (laughs) It sounds tricky to figure out the exact heuristic for when do you compact the tree. And I I think this is, at this point, your compiler is going to be fast enough anyway. (laughs) This is... uh, (laughs) Could be, yeah. You've gone way past what what most fast compilers even bother doing, I think.
0: And actually, now that you mentioned it, an interesting idea might be maybe we just always compact and we just use the fact that it's like, well, we're compacting something that's in cache. We can probably just use like, you know, a couple of SIMD instructions and just like, you know, copy large chunks over. And so we have one path that's like, inline and compact, and then by the end of it, it's like, great, now everything you know is as fast as we can make it.
1: Yeah, it's pro- pro- quite probable. So another way is, so you have a standard AST representation where you have your root, and the root has pointers to its its children, mm-hmm. and so on, so conceptually. So another way of doing it, which is kind of the array programming style of representing ASTs, is that you have, um, have parent pointers instead.
0: Whoa, so you okay.
1: Store all of your nodes, and they just store their parents. A pointer to the parent, or the index of the parent in some array. Uh-huh. And that means that you don't actually care about the traversal order. You can, if you want to, um, for efficiency reasons, but it doesn't really matter where they are. But they're still kind of in one big chunk, and and you can modify the way the, the order in which they are stored in order to optimize whatever traversal you end up wanting to do. But I think the main reason people do it that way is because it makes it easier to do um, data parallelism across all the nodes, because huh. it makes like if you want, for example, to compute. The, the maximum for each for each node you want to compute the how far it is from the from the root for example uh-huh. you can just start from all of the um, all of the leaves and then yeah well what what would you do in the, in that case oh you want now if you want to max the maximum depth i guess that's what you can do then you start all the leaves do a one and then you find the parents you move you, you move up and then you just take the uh, you need you deduplicate at that point so there's only one kind of worker or whatever per, per node, and you just keep on going until you until you hit the root. And it turns out many algorithms are, on, on, are easier to express when you have that representation in a data parallel setting. But again, this stuff is really something you should ask Aaron Sue about, the author of the Code defense Compiler. I mean, most of what I know about this topic is something I've learned from reading his uh, PhD thesis anyway. But, but he really tried to re-engineer how you represent things um, in a compiler in order to make it um, more parallel and more efficient.
0: Yeah, maybe I should talk uh, to him. That's, uh, uh,
1: and it's very counterintuitive. The way he structured his compiler is completely contrary <laughs> to everything that I've learned about how to structure a compiler. <laughs>
0: I mean, that, I would say the same thing about like SIMD JSON and parsing. I don't know if you, if you read that paper or looked at the implementation at all.
1: I, yeah I did and I also listened to your episode about it
0: okay okay <laughs> yeah I mean it's it's wild it's it's totally yeah it doesn't even feel like parsing I mean of course it is but right. it just feels like no parsing system I've ever heard of
1: <laughs> so I, I also actually became interested in parallel parsing recently and I had a so I'm an academia so when I become interested in something I find a minion to, to do the work <laughs> a student uh, called William Du a very bright undergraduate student who, for his bachelor's thesis implemented a implemented a parser generator that um, that you give it a gra- you give it a grammar and then it spits out a parallel parser using a oh, wow. a theory an algorithm developed in the in 90 uh, 2003 i think called uh, llp um, okay and the way th- LLP works. So I don't know how familiar you are with parsing theory, but you have these different classes of grammars. Like you have the, um, the LL class of grammars and the LR class of grammars and they you parameterize them by how much look ahead they need, how many symbols they must be able to look ahead in order to, to determine which production to take. And so and um, so these two people, it was around actually 2007, Ladislaw Wagner and Borivaj Melikar, they came up with a grammar class called LLP where you can characterize a grammar by how many symbols you must be able to Look ahead, and how many symbols you must be able to look behind in order to figure out for any given token which uh, production in the grammar that this can possibly be if the entire thing is, is going to be syntactically correct. So it's basically a kind of a speculative parsing where you can imagine that you have your input, you all of your tokens. So this is after lexing, it doesn't console itself with lexing directly. And um, you have one thread in a sense. Per token, then okay. you just investigate a bounded neighborhood to figure out what kind of context you're in, and then if you can do that with the finite kind of context, then you can can do parallel parsing based on on on, uh, on analyzing. Well, if I'm seeing this token and it appears before after after this token and just before this token, then if this is at all syntactically correct, then I know that what must come before must be my the top of my parsing stack must look as a certain way. It's it's quite a, a complicated. Um, it's kind of a counterintuitive algorithm to to me, but it, it does work. What is not clear is which grammars can be parsed this way. We know it's very limited. We just just don't know whether uh, how limited. We know JSON actually um, can be parsed this way in this fully hmm. parallel manner. It's also not really clear to us whether it's uh, practical. I mean, whether you actually get a fast parser this way because it's it, it's one pass over the input is not enough if you want to do it this way. You need probably oh, a, just a number of passes.
0: Oh, no, so. you mean like because you need to materialize the tokens first. N-
1: yeah, well that's we kind of ignore the lexing part. That's another challenge. You also need to okay. have a, a parallel lexer if you want this to work out well. No, it's um, so it's based on it's basically it turns parsing into map reduce. So you map a function over every token and mm-hmm. then you do a reduction. And
0: ah, that tells okay. you
1: whether the input is syntactically correct or not if you actually want a tree then you need to do some more work
0: also oh i see you know? okay
1: but when you but from a theoretical perspective it's, uh, it's all about language recognition uh, not, not language um, like constructing the, the past tree although i don't think that part is so difficult but you do need a logarithmic number of kind of traversals of the input it's not really the input it's kind of a transformed format at that point so i don't know whether it's efficient because I don't think you actually need that much parallelism. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah,
0: it's really well, there's always the question of overhead. I mean, one, one of the things that I think is really interesting about parallel computing in general is that like when I was learning to compute and you know le- learning computers in general, learning how to program and stuff, and this was back in the 1990s, this was like, I mean, you had single threaded and then you had this fancy multi-threaded thing. And, you know, that in many cases just meant that was the CPU giving you time slices. They didn't even have multiple cores. And now you have multiple cores and then within each core, you can do parallelism via SIMD and and also instruction level parallelism uh, like even if you're not using SIMD and then outside the CPU you also have the GPU which has its own set of trade-offs and then you also have uh, you know like multi-threading like cooperating between multiple cores and all of those things have some amount of overhead compared to just using sequential like sort of ordinary I guess uh, instruction level parallelism doesn't necessarily have any overhead, but like certainly SIMD, like SIMD instructions take a little bit longer to run than like normal or, or, you know, pre SIMD, (laughs) uh, operations. Um, and of course, like sending data to and from the g p u takes time like moving it like the memory around uh, right. so I understand
1: that's actually oh. the core thing, so moving data is much more expensive than doing computation computation is is almost free to, to that's make. what I've heard yeah <laughs> so I mean speeding up passing if you're already at the i o limit is um, that's not really that's not that's a no point to it
0: and and, uh, and that's why I'm excited about like. You know, what What are the other parts of the compiler? Because it seems like, and I guess we'll find out, because it seems like, as far as I know, I don't know of any programming language that's tried doing the SIMD JSON stuff and parsing. And there's definitely, which we talked about in that episode, there's definitely some challenges around like, well, you have comments and strings and unlike when you're parsing json if you're parsing json you can tell they all they had to do is handle backslashes and they have a very very clever way of doing that but then you're like okay let's all the strings are in between the quotes and that's it but now you have to have context you have to know are we in the middle of a comment because if you're in the middle of a comment then yeah. you know etc etc et
1: that, that, that is tricky so actually um
0: so we might not be io bound even after applying that technique we don't know yet
1: no, but also so JSON is interesting because in in JSON it makes in JSON you often have an enormous pile of JSON objects that you need to parse to do some kind of often very superficial analysis. Whereas in compilation, you have usually relatively little source code by by kind of data standards, and after parsing, you usually end up doing an extremely expensive operation on it. So so yeah. I, don't, I think passing. It become is not really a bottleneck in a modern compiler, but it is certainly for if you like for JSON, if you have kind of some kind of JSON firewall or whatever, you you have you have a web service, you, it's passing uh, thousands of JSON objects of uh, representing web requests per second, and you want to filter them or analyze them or do some statistics, then clearly it's you are you bound. But in a compiler, I mean, even 50 megabytes of source code is an enormous program. Right. And uh, Whereas 50 megabytes of JSON is, that's nothing. It's <laughs> So the, the, the performance requirements are just completely different. I will and, also say, though, that, so the thing about, I mean, coming back to what I talked about with, about parallel parsing before, so the, the simply JSON parsing approach is very pragmatic. It's about getting good performance on current programs. And I, I don't think it really, it's not about parallelism because it uses uh, AVX 512, right? So that's 512 bits
0: so uh, it's miles. it's faster oh. if you do that uh, so it, I mean the, the way that we're using it and the way that they use it in the paper is 128 bit because that's like yeah. way more common in, yeah. in processors
1: Okay, so that's like so that's what uh, 16 bytes yeah 16 bytes so that's like yeah 16 bytes of input your reading at times so that's your degree of parallelism it's probably even less than than that because I don't know what is the vector size it's like eight or something but anyway that's that's how much parallelism SIMD JSON is actually exploiting in order to get its State of the art performance, right. whereas this theoretical parsing algorithm that we've been working with, it doesn't have a limit. It, it scales to infinitely much parallelism. Right? Right. If you had a supercomputer with a million cores, it could take advantage of, of that. But you don't. You are very rarely in a situation where you have a single JSON object and you and you can and you need an entire supercomputer to fit all of it. And that just just right. <laughs> you don't have a one petabyte JSON dictionary. What that you instead you might have a a billion smaller files, but you don't actually need parallelism across them. And things are always much much more difficult to parallelize when uh, you can't isolate things. So so I think in most cases, it's really just worth... Figuring out how, where you can split the problem and then just do sequential code efficiently or very small parallelism inside of those things. Actually, doing complete parallelism across an entire large problem is usually not worth it. You might as well just, uh, if, you, if you're really in that situation where that's necessary, then recheck your assumptions because you I'll <laughs> find a different job. <laughs> I guess it's yeah. It's usually, uh, I like can imagine in rock, you'll probably have lots of tricks for speeding up uh, type checking and uh, and parsing and all these other things. Like, what if someone wrote a, a rock program that was was 10 million lines of code, and it was all a single function. (laughs)
0: That's kind of, <laughs> right.
1: do, do you really care about that problem? It's, I mean, it would be really difficult to do type checking inside one function with one million lines where, let's say, all of the, it has a bunch of local functions that are mutually recursive or something nasty. Or well, maybe it's just nested. So you have like a 10 million nested let bindings or something like that. That can happen, but is that really right. a case you want to optimize? Sometimes you just want to say, yeah, no. Oh, this is not the granularity at which we are optimizing or parallelizing or whatever.
0: And I think that's a really good point because, I mean, that, that is something that I've had to sort of make my peace with is that sometimes that you're at a fork in the road and you're like, we can make it so that it's, you know, this degree of fast and, and it supports this really esoteric use case that maybe will never come up or maybe will come up like once ever, one person, or we can make it fast for everybody else. And it's like, you know what? We should make it fast for everybody else. That's that's the, cor- the correct trade-off.
1: Yeah, and a nice thing for compilers specifically is that you can generally assume that the user is not malicious Right. Um, the user also has an interest in their com- program compiling quickly. So <laughs> <laughs> True. And also, you have some kind of idea of what a well-written program is in terms of I mean, like type annotations and such. And if you can leverage the properties of what you consider a well-written program in the compiler, so you can assume that it's a well-written program, then sometimes you can draw some advantage from that, especially like a special casing. If you have a program where we have type annotations for all top-level functions, then you have a fast path for that. That's really valuable. Yes.
0: Yeah, we actually already have something like that in the the parser. I I'm, you know have sort of sketched out and partially implemented, um, which is around indentation. So Rock is indentation sensitive in some places, and one of the things that uh, I realized is that so we have a built-in formatter, also like Go and like Elm, and well, I guess not not quite like Elm, but uh, it's it's like actually baked into the compiler. You can just say like Rock format and it formats your source code according to a you know predefined uh set of rules and with the anticipation that that's going to be what basically everyone does which is typical in languages that have this so we do like force based indentation and it's also the case that uh the formatter always only ever does one level of indentation at a time it'll never double indent for any reason that's just like the rules that we ended up with. And I realized that that actually allows us to uh, keep track of indentation if we're on that happy path in a very, very efficient way, which is just using a single number to be like, what indentation level are we at? And all you have to do is just check to make sure it's still a multiple of four, which can be just some you know, that compiles to bit shifts. And as long as it stays as a multiple of four, then you can also track outdents very efficiently because you just divide by four and that's how many outdents you just outdented. And you, so you don't need to have like an entire stack of like, you know, how, how indented are we, etc. Now, of course, as soon as you deviate from that and it's some indentation other than four then we have to you know fall back on introducing a stack but the fast path is just like yeah this is just an integer that's okay. how we track indentation
1: <laughs> yeah, So we optimize for the common case yeah. i guess you've also so you're using hillary miller type inference right right so now we're coming back to this thing about the user not being malicious. So Hindley Milner type inference is exponential time in the worst case.
0: Yep. Yeah, if you have if you have like a, a gigantic sequence of nested let bindings yeah, then it it's going really to be super slow. Nested,
1: no one writes code that way. So that's like right. it's it so it'd be horrible matter.
0: to read. Why would you ever do that to yourself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. And it's it's another good example of it's like, yeah, you can give everybody a really good experience unless they do something that no one would really ever do in practice. And even if they did, there's ways you could tell them like, well, here's here's what you could do instead to make it not have horrible performance. But yeah, it does rely on that assumption. And that's that it seems to have held, you know, for Haskell, for Elm, for OCaml. Like, nobody's like, oh, that OCaml, Hindley Miller. Oh, actually, OCaml's, I don't, can't believe I didn't bring up OCaml. OCaml's a great example of a fast compiler. <laughs> Somebody like, you know, 20 minutes ago in the episode, it was like, Camel, why are you saying Camel'? <laughs> You're talking about Go. I, I don't know which is faster, Go or OCaml as compilers, but they're both, as, as I understand it, extremely, extremely fast uh, yeah. uh, so relative my, to My, the my media. impression is that
1: people write much larger Go programs. I mean, That's useful for enterprise code. So there's some really large That's fair. Yeah, I mean, you,
0: you probably have like an outlier like Jane Street. Uh, in terms of like large OCaml code bases, yeah, but yeah, there's, yes. there's probably not um, nearly as many large OCaml code bases that are large Go code bases. Yeah, that's a fair yeah, point.
1: Right, yeah. OCaml compiler really is fast. That's uh, that's definitely yeah. true. So actually, another thing about it, maybe one. So o- Go famously has their own everything. So they do their own code right. generation. They don't use LLVM. They yep. even have their own assembler with their own assembly syntax. Last I checked, OCaml also has has their own everything. Mostly right. because it's old, not because they're stubborn. So they also yeah, because that's how it was
0: done back in the day, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, before uh, LLVM.
1: Many yeah, manual languages do LLVM, and we can further our it through C, and that's really slow. Uh, yeah. LLVM it used to be pretty fast, now it's not. And passing through a C compiler is, of course, also very slow. And also, uh, standard system linkers are also surprisingly slow.
0: Oh, yeah. So those are actually our two biggest bottlenecks right now and we're working on so we have code generation for x64 that is now good enough to be used in the REPL and we just like the the last step of that project is use it for the REPL and then one step after that is use it outside the REPL and there's like a couple other to-dos to do there but like we have all the instructions written out for x64 we have a bunch of them for ARM but uh, we don't have functions because there's like different calling conventions that we just calling conventions are just a huge pain (laughs) but yeah it's 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 pretty close and yeah it's it's exactly it's just for performance because LLVM is so slow so we use those for development builds or, or we plan to use those for development builds and the REPL and then uh, use LLVM for optimized builds.
1: So what's the performance of uh, your generated code to what it would be with LLVM?
0: Way slower. I mean, well, I guess like percentage wise. So right now we're not even doing like register spilling. We're just we just like put everything on the stack. So it's like it's going to be outrageously slower than LLVM. <laughs> um, also we have we have zero like we plan to, but like we none of us knows how to do that. So we didn't just like do it as a matter of course. So we like some of us have to learn how to do that and then implement it. But I mean, again, it's you know the, the point of it is during like a development build. If you're just like you know you just want to run your code or run your tests, like the the important thing we we suspect strongly is that it's you want because really when you're doing a. Development, Development build, or you're running your tests, or you're using the REPL, the total amount of execution time is the sum of how long the compiler took and how long your program took. And at least right now, the <laughs> the, the programs we're seeing, and this I think will be true for quite a while, is that the compiler is just going to take longer than the program. And so we should optimize for making the compiler go as fast as possible. And you know, we, we can get fancier with that and introduce some degree of optimizations, but they all have to be balanced against how long does it take the optimizations to run? Because we're always thinking about that sum of compiler plus program execution. So uh, I, I do think, though, that there's definitely an interesting, like, I, I, we could do a whole episode talking about linking and, and how like we're dealing with that. But basically, we have this thing called a surgical linker. That's our, our alternative to the system linker. And it's very, very rock specific. And it basically uses, you already have a binary that's mostly done. And then we have our, our new application code that was just built. And we basically surgically sort of staple them together. Like we, we sort of cat the, the new code that you have onto the end of the existing sort of platforms pre-compiled binary that has a bunch of other logic. And then we surgically just go through and fix up all the all the references. And it's astronomically faster than the um, the system linker. But the downside is right now it works on Linux. And everybody who's using Rock on Linux is having the surgical linker. It theoretically works on Windows, but not many people use Rock on Windows. So it's not very well exercised. So I suspect there's bugs there. Um, I think there might also be a couple that we know about but haven't fixed. Uh, and then on macOS, it's not even done yet because macOS linking is just this whole yeah, zoo sure. that, <laughs> that is just totally different than Linux or Windows. But yeah, li- linking, I mean, for sure, like linking and code generation are the two slowest parts of the compiler right now by far. It's just that like we already have projects that are very far underway to fix both of those. They're just not done yet.
1: I don't, yeah, I don't know, worry about that in I mean, do a little bit more development and then your optimize will be much slower than linking
0: is. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, so LLVM taking a long time to generate code is partly optimizations, but even if we turn off all the optimizations and we say LLVM just generates some machine code for me, like it's still very slow. It's it's like, basically, if you just look at like a flame graph of what does the rock compiler do, you would just conclude that all it does is generate code and link it. <laughs> like it doesn't actually do anything else. All the like parsing, canonicalization, type checking, monomorphization is just like, just washed away by how long code generation. And, and, and when I say this, I mean, it's like, all that put together is like a second for like, you know, current like rock programs, but they're all very small. So, I mean, to me, like a second, because I mean, if you do parse canonicalize type check and it just, so you say rock check, that's a command we have that just tells you reports any type errors, syntax errors, whatever. That takes like eight milliseconds on like, you know, most like rock programs. That's pretty good. Yeah, like, but then as soon as you want to run it, you know, like run your tests or like you know, run your program, then it takes a whole second. And it's like, what happened?
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure. So rock has a, a, some kind of standard built-in library, right? Yes. Do we also generate code for that? for the entire thing whenever you compile?
0: Yeah, so we actually, we, there, there are two different ways uh, that we precompile. So uh, one is we actually precompile to LLVM uh, bit code, like the LLVM IR, right. and we yeah. store that. So the only two ways, because Rock doesn't, the standard library doesn't do any IO, so it actually doesn't even do any syscalls. Uh, so all we have to do is compile it down for either 32-bit or 64-bit, depending on the target, and then that's it.
1: Wait, now, now I'm curious, you you still do 32-bit code generation?
0: Uh, for WebAssembly, yeah. Oh, okay, yeah, all right, yes. It, <laughs> <laughs> that's the one place that that comes up.
1: It's really sad that WebAs- we are almost done with that distinction and WebAssembly just snuck back in and...
0: Yeah, well. I actually, I, I'd be curious to know why WebAssembly is... I know that there is a specification for a 64-bit WebAssembly, but I've always wondered if part of that was intentional, just thinking, well, if you imagine the use cases in the browser, you're probably not going to need to address more than like a couple gigabytes of memory anyway. And so why not make all your pointers smaller? I don't know if it was an intentional design decision for performance, especially because you're considering like the payload coming across the wire is, is significant and you know, all those pointers all have to be in there or or if there was some other reason.
1: It just seems very short-sighted to this thing. oh, no one is ever going to need more than 32-bit pointers here. <laughs> <on>. <laughs> they must have known from the get-go that eventually people would write huge applications in WebAssembly. I just, I don't know. It's probably some subtle web uh, integration or security thing that that would be my guess. But I don't, I don't understand. I don't understand the reason really.
0: Yeah, yeah I just have speculation, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd be very curious to talk to somebody who actually knows the real reason. But anyway, yeah. So so we do that, and then. Um, So for the development builds, what we can do is, uh, we're not doing this yet. So uh, Rock has this concept of platform the application. The platform is this sort of, it's almost like a framework. It's sort of like a lower level thing. So you have like a, a, a platform for web servers. You have a platform for command line applications. You have a platform for GUI applications, whatever. So that kind of compiles down to some sort of static binary blob that's written in the lower level language. And then you build your application on top of that. So what we can do for development builds is we can basically precompile your, the standard library uh, and just staple it onto that blob for your particular platform. And now we have platform plus standard library as one just you know development artifact. And then we just have to surgically link your application onto that. And then now you've got everything. Um, so the plan is to do that and, the, and to cache those. Uh, but we haven't actually done that yet. So right now what we do is just the LLVMIR and and save that for, uh, for all your built-ins.
1: Wait, so this this platform thing, I don't think I've heard of of that before. I haven't looked a little bit into Rock, But so the idea is that uh, the platforms are not written in Rock themselves. They're kind of some runtime-ish code.
0: Right. So Uh, the platforms are basically two pieces. One is sort of the low-level implementation, which is basically uh, the platform supplies all the I.O. primitives and actually a little bit of the memory management. So the platforms basically supply all the I.O. primitives plus uh, malloc and free. And Rock compiles to something that's going to call those like malloc and free things, right. but it expects uh, that the, the platform has provided those because this so Rock standard library is agnostic to how memory, like how those are implemented.
1: So when I write a Rock program, do I know, do I have to decide which platform I target? Or you yes. Well, okay, that's pretty yeah. cool. So that means you can kind of use Rock and depending on which platform you use, you can either, it can either be a, an Elm-like environment for a web application or, or a command line program. And depending on which platform you choose, you have access to different kind of, Primitives so or the the main the main function will have a different interface. That's pretty nice. So but it's exactly totally the same yeah. language, and you can yeah, that was reuse l- libraries that are pure across all of these platforms. Yep. Yeah, that's pretty. Yeah, nice you,
0: you just yeah. inferred like all of the designed aspects of rock <laughs> off yeah, the top a, of your head. That's yeah, very impressive. Sense.
1: No, it's it's, yeah, it's that's a pretty nice design.
0: I'm very impressed because I've explained this to lots of people, and usually there's like a long follow up explanation that I give, and you just kind of were just like, oh, so here are all the implications of that. You're exactly right. <laughs>
1: This is a pattern that occurs sort of in Haskell, kind of, but not in a, in a language integrated way, where you are writing to where you are writing your application within a monad that is what could correspond to your your platform. Now, in Haskell, the problem is that at the end of the day, it runs in the IO monad, which is not generic at all. That can just do everything, so you you, you lack the, the final language integration. And of course, having this platform notion is in some way less flexible because if you want to target something completely new, then you. Uh, Need to write a platform, which cannot be done in rock. But uh, I guess the hypothesis is that new platforms come across, come along fairly rarely. So it doesn't matter that writing a new platform requires an expert to write code in, you know, Rust or C or whatever.
0: Yeah. So I mean, my my thought process there is that when a new one comes along, there might be a couple of different reasons. So one might be that someone has a different take on an existing one. So a really cool example of this is I have a really basic web server which I haven't open sourced yet. Actually, that's on my to do list to do in the next like. Couple of weeks. That's just it uses Rust under the hood, like some of Rust's libraries for you know doing web server stuff, and then it presents a Rock API on top of that. Um, one of the people who works on Rock's compiler, uh, Folker uh, Devries, he has been working on a project that's an alternative take on a web server that has some really cool characteristics. That is basically uh, it does arena allocation for every web request. So every request handler gets a fixed amount of memory. It doesn't do any garbage collection doesn't do even like, you know, reference counting. never reclaims anything. And also if you exceed that memory budget, then the request 500s, but none of the other requests are affected at all. It's a very cool idea. And it obviously has like different trade-offs compared to a traditional web server. But the idea is that you can have two platforms that have identical rock APIs. And then as an application author, I can just try out one or the other and just swap between them. And none of my application code has to change as long as they both made themselves be API computers compatible.
1: That's that's very neat yeah.
0: So that's um, one one aspect of it that I think is cool and then the other is the original motivation for the platforms and applications design was actually like I love Elm and I wanted to use Elm in other domains besides like web front ends and so I was trying to think of how could you make recreate sort of the Elm experience of this sort of curated like This is it. It feels like everything is cohesively designed for this particular domain, but replicate that across a lot of domains. And I think about things like I'm like, I would like to write a Vim plugin. I don't want to learn Vim script. I don't want to write Vim script like Vim script just by reputation. just doesn't sound like it would be a good time. So I was like, well, what if somebody else who knows Vim or Vim C bindings could write a Rock platform for that? And now I can write my Rock Vim plugin and just have a good experience. And it would feel just like I need to learn the the Rock APIs, but that it's in the language that I'm I'm comfortable with. Right. Um, that's
1: a nice idea. That's a very nice idea.
0: Yeah. So that would be the like. There's a new. There's a demand for a new platform in a new domain, and it's like, yeah, you do need an expert for that. But then once that one expert does that, it unlocks everybody else to to be able to do something that they couldn't do before.
1: Right. So it, it has some similarities to embedded languages, which are not so common anymore. But back in the day, with the, in the 90s, you embedded Python or Perl or PHP, not so much PHP, but the others in inside your web server or inside other applications, or Lua, for example. Lua is yeah. very famous for its embedding. But that's, those embeddings are kind of a much more... In a sense, crude because when you embed Python, you still just have the entire standard Python interpreter running inside another process. Right. Whereas your pl- your uh, platforms sound like that they can be much they can be much more many more differences between the different platforms. Like you can change the memory allocation strategy. So actually, I'm I'm really curious what can you do inside of a platform? How much freedom do you have when you write a new platform? How how much can Ruck be different?
0: So basically the way that it works is let's say I'm writing a platform. There's a couple of primitives that I have to provide. So that's uh, basically malloc free and realloc. We're in the process of adding, oh yeah, and uh, and crash, which is basically like what happens if there's like a, a panic. So we don't have like an exception handling system. It's basically just if you get like, for example, an uh, integer overflow, it just, we just say panic, like give up, blow up. And what happens next is up to the platform to decide. Uh, so those are sort of four basic, Functions that we don't see going away anytime soon. We're working on adding a little bit to that list for uh, inline, like print line debugging, which uh, originally we tried to do in a different way and it hasn't worked out great. And so we're switching over to having the platform be in charge of it.
1: Which operations a platform exposes. Right.
0: Uh, yeah. So so we want to add one more for a sort of like debug, like print line debug logging. Um, so one way in which that comes up is uh, at, at work, this actually came up. Basically, we deploy all of our servers to AWS Lambda. Currently at work, uh, they're on a TypeScript backend, but the plan is to move that backend to Rock sort of incrementally. This is actually another use of platforms is you can say my entire existing code base is the platform and I'm going to expose primitives that, that's just a way for Rock to hook in incrementally introducing Rock to that code base. And a cool thing about that is you can say stuff like, well, we have a primitive that's like this entire our wrapper around a database operation. It's like Rock's like, okay, that's an IO operate. That's an IO primitive now, sure. But basically, where that comes up with regards to the uh, the primitives that we're exposing is when we do like a, a debug log, when you're running it on like an AWS Lambda or something like that, we don't really want it to go to standard out, we want it to go to like, you know, a log or something like that. And so that's where we kind of realized, oh, actually, this is something that needs to be like the platforms in charge of saying like, where do your debug statements actually write to? At any rate, so those are the primitives that the platforms in charge of memory, uh, alloc free realloc. What does crash mean? And what does like debug logging mean? Um, And then beyond that, basically the platform can specify any IO primitives they want, but they do have to be wrapped up in, I guess you would call it like the equivalent of like a Haskell IO monad. You can't just say like, oh, here's a function. I I pinky swear promise there's no side effects in it. You actually have to provide it to the, um, well, that's the way it works today. Actually, the way that we're changing it is going to be more elegant and also more powerful, um, but it's taken a long time to implement, uh, which is basically that, we're switching the model around so that essentially, the platform calls the compiled rock function. And that's it, there's no back and forth call. It's just like, the platform can call rock functions, the rock functions don't know about the platform, they just like, "I, I return stuff to you, here you go. And the elegant thing, and the thing that also is more powerful is that what we're working on doing is making it so that one of the things you can return is essentially a record of callback functions that represent a state machine that the platform can then interpret, which is more powerful because it allows for async stuff. So now we can say, oh, you just, we, we, we've we compiled down to a nice little async state machine and all of our effects are asynchronous, which they already have to be specified in a way that's async friendly. And now the platform can use whatever asynchronous, you know, IO mechanism they have and, and want to use. And it could just hook into that very easily because they just call the rock thing. Once that's done, it says, cool. Here's a function that tells what state to go in the state machine to next, store that. Whenever you're done with the async IO, call it, passing what came back, and and that's it. So that's, that's essentially how Elm works too, right? I'm not sure actually under the hood how Elm does that. I think Elm might be able to, because Elm compiles to JavaScript. So JavaScript has sort of known async mechanisms. And I'm, yeah, now that you mention that, I'm not actually sure. Like, I don't think Elm needs to compile to a state machine because you can just compile to exactly what JavaScript is using for async. Which is what I think it does, but I'm actually not sure. Now that you mentioned it, it might yeah, but, actually. But I mean,
1: an Elm program is basically a state machine. You write these event handlers, and you paddle right. what event comes in based on yours and the state that you have in your. your
0: Absolutely, application. yeah. I just, I just don't know what it happens to compile to. Um, yeah, interesting question. But anyway, that, that's that's what we're planning on moving towards, and so I think that, uh, like, w- once we're done with that, it should be both more powerful and also like a really straightforward sort of explanation of like how that works. So I guess that brings me to the last thing that the platform's in charge of, which is sort of main. (laughs) Like the platform actually is in charge of like at the binary level, like what happens when things start up and it's up to the platform code to call the rock code. And this is true, whether you're building a rock application or like a plugin or, you know, integrating an existing code base, the platform always calls the rock function rather than the other way around. Actually, you mentioned Lua being notable for embedding. The original joke name for rock was typed pure functional Lua. (laughs) 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: i like rock better
0: <laughs> yes it rolls off the tongue a little easier <laughs>
1: yeah. i need to try out rock. i looked into it i don't know a year on a year and a half ago um, because obviously because bro you wanted to do efficient functional programming that is also my hobby yeah uh, but uh, but i'm guessing you haven't really gotten to the to that part yet right
0: so it's come a long way, in a year and a half. You'd have a much better experience today than you would have back then. But also, it's also gotten to the point where it needs a new website. The website right now is kind of uh, bare bones, and uh, that's also a work in progress. So excited to roll that out in maybe a month or two.
1: Now, I don't actually remember what I noticed, but you, you, I think it was a very list-oriented programming. Is that just for convenience, or do you have some kind of trick for making list, lists more efficient?
0: Uh, so we call them lists, but they're actually basically C++ vectors, is what they're right. going like to
1: Okay, so recursion is over them is very slow, or...? How does it work?
0: Uh, so if you want to, uh, that's an interesting question. So if you want to do the traditional, like, I want to say pop something off the front, that's not really, if you want to do like, a, pretend it's a cons list and just uh, take yes. take like the head yeah, and tail, yeah. that, that type of thing. So we do actually have something that, okay, something that Rock and Futhark have in common is the compiling to opportunistic in-place mutation. Futhark does that with uniqueness types, or at least it did at one point. I don't know if that's still true. Yeah, it's not opportunistic.
1: It's guaranteed by the type system.
0: Right. So, (laughs) yeah, so we... That's right. Um, So we started off on uniqueness types, but it wasn't a great fit for us because we do it opportunistically. So we don't actually have type annotations for that. It's just like when the compiler... Or the runtime actually, because we do reference counting, discovers that it's possible, then we do it.
1: Yeah, that's much better way of doing it. Uniqueness types are horrible. These kind of substructural type systems, you should never have them if you can avoid them at all. <laughs> <laughs> it's,
0: it's, it's, it's okay. It's interesting that you mentioned that because we actually have had people there's been requests for that. Like people say, like, I want to be able to guarantee that, yeah, no, I know, I know,
1: I <laughs> know. Just tell them, no, it's not worth it.
0: That's where the conversation's always ended so far, but it does it does keep coming up. So I understand that, that there's definitely demand for it, um, even even if it ultimately isn't the right choice for the language. So another thing that we do is, like I said, they're kind of like C++ vectors. So it's like you have a flat array of bytes, and then you have uh, you know the beginning, the length, and the capacity. But we do actually have a couple of tricks. So one of the tricks that we do is we have what we call seamless slices, which is basically if you say, like, give me the first, uh, give, like split this up into head and tail, um, what you actually get back is uh, essentially slices into that original memory. So we don't right. actually reallocate and copy Okay,
1: So, so, so you, can, you can split your list efficiently, right? Is that what you're getting at?
0: <clears throat> well, I, I would say we can slice them. Um, yes. okay, and the, you, the, you, the you, critical distinction being them that them. now they're shared, which means they're no longer eligible for in-place mutation. Because they have so, to be unique at uh, um, runtime in order to do that.
1: So, what what happens when you const an element to the front of a list? Can like right. I write a standard recursive map in uh, in Rock? Is that bad?
0: I it's not going to be as fast as just using the built in map. That's for sure.
1: No, <laughs> right sure. I mean, it yeah. is, But but is it going to be like uh, quadratic if I have to prepend an element to every, uh, every recursive call?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> I, it's, good, it's gonna be it's gonna be slow.
1: It's just a different, so, but this actually brings me to something that, that I find very interesting, which is that functional programming is not inherently inefficient. And it it can actually be very nice for parallel programming. But a lot of the programming styles, not, not intrinsic properties of the, of the paradigm, but the styles that we've been taught and that we're teaching, like recursion over pointer structures are inherently inefficient. But that's not the only way to program. Programming with higher level constructs like map, reduce, and so on, these bulk operations is potentially very efficient. Uh, As long as they're not implemented in terms of uh, just naive recursion, of course. Uh, But the high-level programming paradigm is inherently efficient, I think. It's just that the low-level function programming paradigm is very inefficient because it's like word-at-a-time pointer-changing.
0: I 100% agree. And that's actually one of my goals with Rock is to sort of like disprove that. I have this hypothesis that... There's no reason you can't have a functional programming language that's as fast or faster than most imperative languages that are automatic memory managed. As soon as you have like you're you're allowed to do memory unsafe things, you can there's just performance optimizations you can do that are not possible otherwise. So with that caveat that we don't want to allow memory unsafe things, um, I, I think we should be able to be, I mean, like, you know, generally faster than Go. That's sort of like a goal. It's like we we always want to be benchmarking to be as fast or faster than Go at any particular operation. I'm sure that won't turn out to be true 100% of the time. I'm sure there'll always be something where it's like, well, there's this particular, you know, yada yada. So, uh, no one should ever want to rewrite a rock program in X because X will be faster. Yeah, unless X is a memory unsafe language or a language that supports memory unsafe operations. So, if it's if it's like completely automatically memory managed. So you're thinking like Go or Java or something like that. I mean, I guess you actually mentioned Go has its own inline assembly language, which I didn't know about. I don't know about um,
1: inline, no, they have their own assembler. I mean, they invisibly run, the ported the entire Plan 9 tool will change to Linux. Because I didn't want to use standard tools.
0: It's, uh, oh, I see. It's, okay, it's, okay. So it's not it's yeah. not slightly <laughs> exposed in user space. All right, because that would have been. Well, no, no, it
1: is. You can. I think you can just run the assembler with their own like, the Plan 9 syntax and all that. It's it's very strange. It's like a alternate alternate world
0: set up to. But like in the it's, middle of like a Go function, you can I just. I don't think. Okay. Probably yeah. Not.
1: No, probably not. <laughs> yeah. But you, you have it's installed probably somewhere. So you've you've but you've done an interesting thing. Um, you've 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 assumed that a language that is. Um, that has automatic memory management must also be memory safe. Could you have a combination where you actually allow memory unsafe operations, but still have me- automatic memory management? Now, this is potentially You can, yeah. But so is any memory unsafe. Absolutely. But looking, getting the raw bytes or doing an an uh, uninterpreted cast or something in a, in a memory sa- in a memory management language should be possible.
0: I mean, I, absolutely, it is. No, I, I, no question that can be done. The reason I put that caveat on it is that 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 would like if we wanted to compete with that on that level we would have to introduce memory unsafe operations and i for other reasons in the language i just don't want to do that so it's it's like there it's not competition because we're not trying to compete on that level that would violate other design goals yeah that's that's the only reason
1: yeah Uh, yeah
0: sure cool well, yeah, we'll, we'll have to do this again sometime. <laughs> Talk more about all these things. This has been really great. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
1: Once yeah, once I've got a minion to do some more work on uh, parallel compilation, then maybe I'll actually have some, some real results to report.
0: Yeah, <laughs> Very nice. So. I'll look forward to that.